Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. With Memorial Day looming, it is beginning to feel a lot like summer, always an exciting feeling, but especially this year, in which summer makes a triumphal return after we all basically lost the season last year to COVID. As the country begins to turn the corner and returns to some semblance of normalcy, and millions of us are all vaxxed up and feeling safe for the first time in a long time, I think I speak for a whole lot of people when I say I am really looking forward to tentatively, carefully, but joyously re-engaging in the rights of summer, and especially the classics that begin with the letter B. Baseball, barbecue, and all things related to the beach. Beach cocktails, beach weed, beach bonfires, and of course, beach reading. And it's on that subject that we bring you today's episode, because boy, do I have a great beach novel for you. Brand new one, entitled, How Lucky... And today, we are very lucky to welcome to the podcast the author of How Lucky, my old and dear and very special friend, Will Leach. The state of our popular culture is cautiously, perhaps increasingly optimistic. I know that we've all been kind of in our defensive crouches for about four or five years now, and particularly for the last year. But I have noticed, generally speaking, in an age of vaccination, that the way we discuss optimism for the future and the euphoric summer that's coming is different than people are actually experiencing it. It is my opinion that people are ready and are going to have a wonderful summer in the United States. It does not mean that there are not still problems. It does not mean there are not still worries. But I sense a growing euphoria in the country. It will be short-lived and then bad things will come. But for now, I would say the state of our popular culture is cautiously increasingly optimistic. Will Leach is one of my favorite people, full stop. If you're interested in sports or popular culture, or you are at all familiar with the history of journalism on the internet, or if you've spent much time reading on the internet over the last like 20 years or so, and I do mean reading as opposed to all the other stuff that people do way more often on the internet, like buying shit and watching porn. Well, if you fall into any of these categories, you have probably come across Will Leach's writing or seen his face on TV or both, which is to say that Will is an insanely prolific dude. As his Wikipedia bio makes clear, William F. Leach, born October 10th, 1975 in Mattoon, Illinois, is a writer and the founding editor of Gawker Media Sports blog, Deadspin. Leach is a national correspondent for MLB.com, a contributing editor for New York Magazine, critic at Gruson and Leach, contributor to the New York Times, GQ, The Washington Post, and NBC News, and has published four books, Catch a Novel, Life is a Loser, a Memoir, God Save the Fan, a book of sports essays, or Are We Winning, a book about fatherhood and baseball. His fifth book, Lucky, a novel. It's published in May 2021 by Harper. I first came across Will when he started Deadspin, which pretty much invented sports blogging and in so doing pretty much revolutionized the coverage of sports. After Will left Deadspin, he came to work in New York Magazine, which is where I got to know him and how I eventually came to hire him to cover the intersection of politics and sports and culture when I was part of starting up Bloomberg Politics. I hired Will because I love the way he writes, fast, sharp, funny, and with ease. I also love the way Will thinks, fast, sharp, funny, and with observations that almost always strike me as original and right on the money and seem to come to him with ease. In addition to loving the way Will writes and thinks, I just, you know, love Will. He is a kind, warm, and generous human in addition to being fast, sharp, funny, and existing on this planet with ease. All of which is why I was beyond excited when Will told me a while back that he was working on a new novel. He told me it was set in Athens, Georgia, where he lives now and where R.E.M., one of my all-time favorite bands, comes from. He told me that it was sort of a comic mystery 
and that it had shades of rear window style voyeurism in it. And then its hero was a guy named Daniel, who was wheelchair bound, afflicted by a serious disability that meant he communicated through a Stephen Hawking style voice modulator. And that was about all Will told me about how lucky. And that's all I'm going to tell you for now, except for two more things. Number one, it is fucking terrific. And number two, Stephen King thinks so too. I love it when Stephen King agrees with me. And luckily for Will, Stephen King told his 6.4 million Twitter followers how much he liked it. He said, quote, I'm reading a fantastic novel by Will Leach called How Lucky. It's suspenseful and often wildly funny. You are going to like this a lot. And I think a lot of you are going to like it. It has that where the crawdads sing vibe. That's a pretty good endorsement right there. Will and I spent a goodly amount of time talking about how lucky on this episode of the pod, the book itself, writing a novel and writing generally. Uh, we talked about Deadspin in some detail, and in particular, one fabulous story about its founding that involves an irate Buzz Bissinger, author of Friday Night Lights. We also talk about the stuff that Will and I always talk about when we talk sports and culture and politics, you know, all the stuff that we love and probably listeners to this podcast love too. This conversation was a delight as pretty much all conversations with Will are. Did I mention that he's one of my favorite people, full stop? I did, right? Good. Because he is, and that's really why he's here. That and to make sure you read How Lucky. Upon which I am pleased to confer the first ever application of the official stamp of literary approval from the reviewers here at Hell and High Water. The best description of writing a novel that I ever heard uh, it's actually in uh, Thomas Williams's book, uh, uh, The Hair of Harold Rue, which is about a novelist trying to write a novel, and it just covers like one or two days in this process, and a lot of things happen to him. It's a fabulous book. But he says that writing a novel is like building a little campfire on an empty, dark plain, and one by one, these characters come out of the dark, and each one has a little pile of wood and they put it on the fire, and if you're very lucky before the fire goes out, it's this big bonfire, and all the characters stand around it and warm themselves. And that's the way it's always been for me. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of Hell and High Water. We are here with my, I sometimes say people are my friends, and I don't really mean it, but in this case, I really do mean it. We're here with Will Leach, my friend. Will, good to see you. I, you know, I'm still working it out with you. Like I'm feeling you're getting close <laughs> to my inner circle, to my Instagram, close four or five. But uh, yeah. of course, Sean, it's it's an honor. Yes. I know when cool, famous people like you call people your friends, I always assumed you meant it. But now I know that you actually do mean it with me. Well, there's never been any doubt about my love for you. But here's the thing. That was Stephen King, just mm -hmm. to be clear, the sound we just heard. And you might wonder why we're why, why would, we would open this podcast with Stephen King. Um, a number of reasons. Well, Stephen King's very, very successful novelist, as people know, iconic in many ways, incredibly has sold a jillion books. You couldn't even count them. So, you know, if you're going to be doing a podcast that was about a guy like Will Leach has just written his novel, you might want to introduce with Stephen King. That's also a very interesting, I thought, evocative description of what a novel is, this notion of you're building a campfire, the characters gather around the campfire, and then they're there for a while in the glow of the campfire. I just think a nice pithy kind of description. I'm going to ask you well, whether that's what it felt like to write your novel. But most importantly, a thing happened to my friend Will Leach a few weeks ago as he was preparing to publish his novel, which is called How Lucky. And before it came out, apparently Stephen King got a hold of it. And Stephen King put on Twitter, I'm reading a fantastic novel by Will Leach called How Lucky. Publishes in May, I think, correctly. It's suspenseful and often wildly funny. You are going to like this a lot, and I think a lot of you are going to like it. It has that where the crawdads sing vibe. Now, 
I just want to know, Will, just like live with me in the moment. You're about to publish your novel. You've sent out presumably galleys to various people like Stephen King, who you'd have no relationship with as far as I know. And suddenly this pops up on Twitter, I would imagine with no uh, advance warning, right? Yeah. What was your reaction in the moment? (laughs) How did you find out that he posted it? And what was your reaction to it beyond like probably having a mild coronary and a a seizure of excitement that your life, your book's fate had just changed in a rather dramatic (laughs) way? Yeah, I had heard he was reading it. That's all I knew is he had actually picked it up. But it was actually that tweet came out on a Saturday night. <laughs> I had actually just gone out to an outdoor dinner with my wife. We'd come back. It was a very nice evening. No, it's rare to be able to have such evenings where you can go out uh, in the age of COVID. And we came back and we were like ready to go to sleep. It was a late, late night. And then that literally pops up all of a sudden. And I realized, good night. Have a good night's sleep. I'm going to be down here dealing with this probably until morning. And so it was obviously, you know, incredibly exciting. When Stephen King, you talked about Stephen King being iconic, and that's obviously true. But, you know, one of the things about Stephen King is to mass swaths of the country, Stephen King isn't just like the really successful novelist. He represents books like he is the representation of what books are. And in the same way that I remember I published a book 10 or 11 years ago and all my my relatives back in rural Illinois said, oh, so it's going to be on Oprah because that was like the only way they knew what books were. And Stephen King is like Stephen when Stephen King writes about your book. That makes people feel like it is a real book. Like there's a wonderful blurb from Richard Russo about this book, who I think is one of no, the- No, no, nobody, yeah. nobody knows. Yeah, he's Richard like a Pulitzer Prize winner, Empire Falls, nobody's full. One of the most brilliant writers I've ever read in my yeah. life. And so the fact that he would say something kind about the book was like overwhelming. And yeah. I don't mean to value that, but like when Stephen King says something about your book, it becomes the thing that like your middle school English teacher sends you a message on Facebook to say, you vindicated my career. And I'm right. like, I don't right. remember you at all. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> but, uh, so I do think that it definitely changes the scope of, obviously it gets the publishers excited. There's a certain line when you, when you write a novel, everyone always says they've got a novel in them and so on. So when you write one and everyone's like, oh, that's cute. Sports boy wrote a novel. Good for you. (laughs) So when Stephen King says it like that, it does certainly, it legitimizes the whole enterprise. It makes people like, okay, maybe this isn't Will just dorking around uh, on the side. It was obviously very, very exciting. And again, I have no relationship with him. I sent him a handwritten note to thank him that I have not heard back from, but uh, I'm not like, we do not have a personal connection. I've never met him. Right, other than right, like right. me, like millions of Americans stole copies of my parents' versions of his books when I was 10 or 11 years old and read them and screamed myself to sleep. Right. So just to say one thing about this, all of that makes total sense. And obviously, I think Stephen King, you're right, I think to a lot of people, like is not a novelist, but is the novelist. So for a lot of people, this is the only novelist they've ever yeah. read. They don't they obviously ever heard of. I mean, I'm talking about vast swaths of America, as you said. The man has 6.5 million followers on Twitter. So it gives you just a sense of scale here and what you know, in the realm of things in book publicity, pre-publicity, you could get, I mean, Oprah back in the day, the Oprah endorsement was everything. And, you know, having someone like Stephen King tweet about your book before it comes out is a vastly, just in terms of pure commercial, I mean, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see why that translates into in terms of sales, but it's definitely a way to get the word out about your book don't fast and get people. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fucking great. So I saw it now, obviously I saw it, I think on your Instagram feed and was really excited for you. And I think it was then that I was like, oh, you know, you and I have been talking about the fact you were working on this book for quite a long time. And then you sent uh, this copy mm-hmm. here to my house. And we did this thing in the Heilman Roten home, which uh, is a, a thing that we sometimes do, which is that I read to my wife novels. Like I'm like, you know, in the audiobook mode, but <laughs> I was like, hey, you know, I, we just got Will's novel. She's a big Woolwich fan um, Thank you. in Thank general. You. And I said, hey, we should really read Will's novel. I said, I'm sure it's going to suck. Of course. But let's see, you know, how it goes. And she was like, sure. 
and we finished it actually last night, having having gotten very far into it, and then for a variety of reasons, kind of gotten a little distracted from for about a week. Uh, and we came back and read last night. And I will say, I am not like Stephen King. I do not have 6.5 million Twitter followers. I am not the only novelist America mm-hmm. knows. I'm not a novelist at all. And we do have a personal connection. And so I'm in the tank for you, as you know. But having said all that, the book's really good, Will. Thank you. I mean, it's really, it's a really, 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 really great book. Thank you. And I, I say all those things as qualifiers. And the most important qualifier to the qualifiers is that my wife, whose integrity is unimpeachable and who isn't really as fully in the tank for you as I am, she was moved scared by the, the the last 50 pages, you know, she found terrifying and then ultimately incredibly kind of uplifting and beautiful. I'm not going to give away a lot. I'm going to ask you to tell about the book right now, but I will say this. We love this book and I think it's, it's fantastic. I hope it does incredibly well, but however well it does, you've written a really, I mean, this is a fantastic novel and you, thank you. Thank you. If you sell seven copies or (laughs) 7 million copies, you should be really proud of what you've done here because it's very, very, very good. Thank you, John. So talk about the book. Let's do this thing, which is, what's this book about? It's about a, a man named Daniel. He is 26 years old. And when I originally wrote the book, I was wary. I wanted to keep it a secret, the disability that he has for a while, but it's impossible to do that in age where you're trying to sell books. So the spoiler is that he has a disease called spinal muscular atrophy. Daniel's the first person narrated the book, and he kind of explains what this is using an FAQ, because he's very the disease, as he describes it, is a very oversimplified way to put it, is that it's almost like ALS for kids. And this is something that we have in our family. My son's best friend has SMA. That was actually what inspired me to write the book in the first place. And basically, he lives in Athens, Georgia, where I live, home of REM and the Georgia Bulldogs. And one morning comes across, uh, he lives lives by himself. He actually answered to social media for an airline, which means he just gets yelled at by people on Twitter all day. And he goes outside and witnesses a woman getting into a car. He sees her every day. And then one day she gets into a car and it just feels weird and strange. And he discovers pretty shortly afterward that uh, it appears this woman was abducted. Was it the same woman? Not only did I see this woman, did this happen? But then because, you know, his disability is quite severe. SMA is particularly for him. Young kids now, there's a drug called Spinraza that that helped extend their lifespan. But for someone like Daniel, you know, 26, he is on the upper realm of as long as he's being able to go to live. He's severely disabled. It's a progressive disease. So it, it basically gets worse. He's in a wheelchair. Yeah. Can't really speak. Right. I mean, a very, very limited ability to speak. He can speak to the Stephen Hawking machine, yeah. basically. But he's very, I mean, severely, severely disabled. Yes. But mind is totally alert, but physically, essentially, is incapable of doing really anything. Yes. And so he attempts to uh, both investigate this crime and also tell what he may or may not know uh, about this crime. Meanwhile, you you see his life and you see kind of what his life is like. He has a caregiver named Marjani and his best friend named Travis. And really, if there's an overarching thing of the book, it is the idea that hopefully it's a crime. Hopefully it's a fun crime novel and it's interesting. It has suspense and so on. But, you know, I will say that like one of the things I wanted to get across with the book, frankly, is it's been like a really, I don't know about you, John, but I feel like for a lot of people, it's been a really, really difficult four or five years in a lot of ways. And it's easy to kind of give in to despair and give in to frustration and exhaustion. And I kind of wanted just to put something good into the world. And Daniel, to me, the thing I nailed first in this book, the suspense story came later, we figured all that out. But the thing I nailed down first was Daniel. You know, I understand that I am an able-bodied person, and therefore there is an inherent limitation in writing about disability. And uh, I'm aware of that. 
to me, a lot of that was, I can never get it exactly right because I don't have SMA. Uh, however, I do believe that A, because this thing has touched our family and touched our friends, and B, I am still a journalist first. I talk to as many people as I possibly could to get it right. I've had a couple of people read this and say, uh, that have disabilities, say, I, I read this and usually when I read something about uh, a book that's written about disability by someone who does not have a disability, I just sit there and wait for them to fuck it up. <laughs> I just like, okay, right. when are you going to get it wrong? Right. And I said, I know. And the reason you didn't find that or didn't find it in your specific case is because a ton of people read it and said, yeah, you fucked that up. Right. Yeah, you sure. that up. And, uh, and so I was able to, to get that right. But yeah, for me, you know, it is uh, hopefully suspenseful, hopefully funny and hopefully kind of, uh, encouraging thing. You know, one of Daniel's principal things in the world is he spends a lot of time online. And so if you spend a lot of time online, you sense that the world is a worse place than it actually is. And one of the things he knows is like, we never record like the small kindnesses of the world. Like when you're walking down the street, someone will open a door for you or they will rush to you if you're opening the door for them. These little moments completely, you get no credit for that. No one says, oh, good job, point. And you get a point to go to the good place or something. Like it is just general quiet kindnesses that people do on an everyday basis that I think never get recorded or noted. And uh, I think that's something that's really important for Daniel to do and to note. And I think that's probably the overarching theme of the book is the idea that like things aren't as horrible as you think they are and people are better than you think they are. It, it's just the worst ones are the loud ones. It's probably the best way to put it. Yeah. What's interesting about the book, I mean, there's a lot of things to say about this. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you talked about the SMA thing because it's obviously the central thing in the book in many ways. And Daniel's a, a highly will leachian character i would say in the sense that he's very mentally and verbally dexterous so it's like as a narrator uh he's very interesting to listen to he has very acute sense of perception you know i think one of the contentions of the book is that because he's disabled in the way he is he has an incredibly watchful eye and he notices details and writes about them in a very rich way and has to communicate entirely through the written word because he can barely speak because of the nature of his disability so it's a, he's a compelling character. And I guess one of the things I, I'll just say, your aspirations very much come through in the book. You've achieved all the things you just set out to achieve. And I commend you for it because I think the book's really quite compelling in that Thank way. You. you know, it is a bunch of different genres <laughs> because there is a there is a page turning suspense crime quality to this. Not exactly a whodunit, but a whodunit, why done it, what the fuck done it. But also this other kind of very life affirming and not in a mawkish way, but part of the reason why the book is so affecting at the end is because it does validate the kind of philosophical thing that you were just expressing. And I do think that it will find a, an audience of people who've been kind of stripped raw and beaten down by the last few years, particularly the last year. And there will be people for whom this resonates in a kind of powerful way. The question I had for you out of that is this. You said just now you're a journalist. You are a journalist. You are a reporter. You are a commentator, an essayist, an analyst, a gabber. You do it all, right? <laughs> Television, blogs, magazines, nonfiction books, all kinds of stuff. We'll talk about more of that in the podcast. What's totally predictable in this book is that it's set in Athens, Georgia, which you know incredibly well. Daniel's family is from central Illinois, <laughs> which you know incredibly well. There are all these very well, like things that feel have great verisimilitude because you are from those places and you are an observant guy and have lived in these things. So like, man, you really feel Athens in this book and you feel the culture of the Georgia Bulldogs. And when you write about his growing up in central Illinois, you feel that. But it's an interesting choice having put so much else of the book in a way that you could write about them from your first person experience over your life to make the central character someone who, as you just said, is inaccessible to you other than as a journalist reporting from the outside. It's a very interesting choice and I'm not challenging and I'm more asking, why did you feel, it's a gutsy move, man. The notion that I would give the hero an affliction or a disability that I have no, it is impossible for me to ever access personally. 
that is a kind of seems to me like a bold move. I, and what's funny is that like the reason that it, it actually became the opposite direction is the thing I had nailed down was Daniel. Like I had him down, nailed, nailed down first. The thing with this book is I didn't pitch this book. This was not like bought beforehand. My agent is David Gernert, who I always joke, his clients are John Grisham and eight people who are not John Grisham. <laughs> I am one of the eight. And so uh, I wrote a book for him for 10 years ago, but I hadn't written anything. I didn't even tell him I was working on this. I just kind of like wrote this on my own. I was in New York and had to meet me for dinner and like physically handed it to him. Like I was in Wonder Boys or something. <laughs> like if I were in like a 90s movie, I would have lost it in a cab or something or a wind would have blown <laughs> it away. And, and he was like, great. Now I have to carry this around. I'm like, don't worry. I have a word file. I'll send it to you tomorrow. I just want to be dramatic. But the point is, is like, this was not something that was, uh, my editor, Noah Eaker at Harper said, well, if you would have pitched me this book, there was absolutely no way I would have bought it. <laughs> like, there's just no way. And you do kind of have to experience. And that was why I wanted to write it like that. Because for me, I went from the other direction. I actually did those details, like being in Athens and having it be from central Illinois, because I was, I felt unsteady as a novelist. And so therefore I wanted to make sure I got the details, like the details that surrounded Daniel. I wanted to like reflexively get those right. I wanted right. to know I had those nailed, but Daniel is the reason the book exists. Like Daniel is the guy I got cold. So that to me, it's funny because like, I was much more certain writing about Daniel than I was about the things that populated his life. And huh. in, in many ways, the, one of my biggest concerns about the book was I love reading books. I have to confess, I'm not one of those people that reads like those airport thrillers. Like I don't really read those. I love reading all the time and I, there's nothing wrong with those books, but those just aren't generally the books that I read a lot. And so like there are certain plot contours that are like expected in a lot of ways that I just don't know what those are. <laughs> and so when we were originally trying to sell the book, there were a lot of things that like, oh, well maybe Travis is his best friend. Maybe Travis is in on it. I'm like, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. <laughs> and so because of that, one thing I've learned about the book world, this is surprising to me is you know, for me, a book is just like this amazing thing that you can create. It didn't exist and now you can make it and you can have the people do whatever you want to do. But there's this obsession with classification in the world, in the world of novels. It's kind of surprising to me. They're like, well, is this a thriller? Is it contemporary fiction? Is it mystery? Is it suspense? And I was like, ah, it's a book and there's a bunch of words that all kind of tell and they tell a story. And it's it's very strange to me. It feels like oddly limited. I get it. There's a ton of books out there. People have to put stuff in kind of their boxes, but I certainly did not imagine. Have you been I, to a supermarket I know, lately? I've been to, I haven't been to a bookstore you know, lately, unfortunately. They put, that, they put all the tomato paste in the same place and that's usually not that far from the ketchup. It helps so people don't get confused. I understand, but what, like to me, the people the got to know how to find it I and guess. know basically what the, what's inside the package uh, before they buy me, it. To me, maybe it's just because the way it was constructed, like it was never constructed with like, this is a mystery and this is a thriller and this is a contemporary fiction. I just didn't think of it that way. I just wanted to tell Daniel's story. And so you're right. Like this has been a, a somewhat of a challenge sometimes for people to classify the book because it's like, wait, this is a thriller. Well, yeah, kind of. Is it a mystery? Yeah, kind of. And and it, all of those things come together. It's kind of weird. It takes away none of my admiration for the book to say this is a classic piece of authorial narcissism, which is like, <laughs> you know, like, dude, you're, you're a rock band. Shut the fuck up. Like, well, we make this music that's really different, I man. Know, you can't fucking... Know. You can't categorize no, what I I'm do. I'm not saying that. Like, don't put me in that box, no, this man. Is a weak, my thing. This is my weakness. Like I'm saying, this is my weakness. This okay, is me okay, not good. necessarily yeah. understanding. Like I'm already working on the next book. We're going to classify this one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, we're going to yeah. have this in the right place. Yeah. You know, I said to my agent, listen, if you just get this published by like the University of Wisconsin Platt Press, like I don't yeah. care. Just like if, if, if you give, give an Amazon oh, number for this yeah. thing. So now we're going to get letters from the University of Wisconsin. Platt I know. Sorry. You know, they're they're doing a lot of uh, interesting things in the fantasy realm. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but the point is that like, I just wanted it out there. And so for me now, now that we've established, now that people like it, now I can do that. Okay. Now you're getting your mystery and now you're getting it. So I understand that world a little bit better than I did before. How long did it take you to write it? 
Uh, actual physical first draft writing only like six months. Like that didn't take yeah. too long, but it's always the fixing. You know how it goes. It's always the fixing it up. For sure. I asked the question just because people don't know you the way I know you, which is to say that I know you well as a professional. You know, one of the things that's true about Will Leach is that this is not at the, as much of a backhanded compliment as it sounds like, but I know better writers than Will and I know faster writers than Will. I don't know that I know a better fast writer than Will or a faster, really good writer than Will. And that's one of the kind of things I, I've known a few people like this in my life. Remnick is a little like this too, David Remnick. And one of my late mentors, Mike Elliott, who first hired me at The Economist magazine when I first started the business and went on to become the editor of Time International and Newsweek International and then ran the one campaign for Bono. There's like people like this who are the part of their virtue is that you can turn to them on two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon and say, hey, we got a hole in the magazine. We need 1500 really smart words about LeBron James or about the good place or about whatever. And they knock out, and this is not hack work. I mean, they knock out in six or seven hours what would take somebody else four or five days. And their thing in six or seven hours is better than the thing that the person would have written in four or five days. Maybe if you gave that other person a six day, their thing would be better than your thing. But your thing in six hours is a fucking masterpiece. I find that almost like the most extraordinary virtue of all. My point about that is to say, you're a very gifted, very facile, very fast writer, mm. right? It's part of why you're so prolific is that you just write shit like the wind, right? And it's of a very high quality, especially at the speed you write it. So it raised the question for me, as you went into novel writing, was the writing still as easy for you? I hate to say as easy for you, but it's the only way I can describe your writing. You write very quickly and very well. Was the writing of the fiction as easy for you as the writing of the nonfiction is? I will say at first I got really excited because I was like, wait, this isn't like journalism. I can just make all the little people do whatever I want them to. This is amazing. <laughs> I don't like I don't have to like stick to what they actually did. And at first yeah. it felt very exciting. But then you take a step back from the problem is in journalism or in like actual news in the world, if someone does something irrational or illogical that makes no sense, we all just be like, eh, people are crazy. We just kind of shrug our shoulders and move on. In fiction, everything's gotta have a justification, everything's gotta lock into place, everything has to make sense. It actually has to be more logical and more real life than real life is. So the actual rewriting to me was a lot harder. The writing of the book, really, once I kind of had Daniel's voice, once I kind of had him nailed down, uh, I wouldn't say that it came easily, but it came as comfortably as my usual regular writing. A couple of days ago, uh, Albert Pujols, who, I, of course, I'm a Cardinals fan and I followed his entire career. The Angels uh, the Angels released him and I write for MLB, MLB.com as, as well as New York Magazine, a lot of other places. And they said, can you get us something? And I had a meeting with all of my editors in like 35 minutes. That <laughs> was like, I bought it. Let's go. And uh, and again, I actually think it's probably the best thing I wrote that week. I had like 25 minutes to write like a 1200 words. And to me, I actually feel like there's a lot of value in the way that it focuses the mind and the idea of. You know, everybody has like their writing heroes. Mine, of course, is yours, is you. But in addition to that, it's uh, Roger Ebert. Like Roger Ebert was one of my heroes growing up. And he has this great line saying that the muse visits during the act of creation, not before, which is another a fancy way of saying just sit down and write and just shut up and start writing. To me, the the act of writing things is when I figure out what it's about. So I'm, I think it's not so much that I'm able to do it fast as much as the process that everyone has to do first, where they sit down and mull over and think about what they're going to do. I'm doing that while I'm writing. That's why I think I'm able to do that. Not so much that I'm just sort of brilliant. I think Charlie Pierce is another good example of someone that's able to do that really well. And I think that, uh, uh, I don't know, I just kind of feel like there's a lot of people like that who I figured out while I'm writing. And I think Roger Ebert was absolutely one of my heroes in that regard. He's a great example. Also, he's from the old newspaper world in the same way that I'm from the old blog world. Like yeah. at a certain level, you write something and then it's done and then you move on and make something else and yeah, don't get too attached to it. Well, we're going to talk a little bit of your background in a, in a moment and about the blog world and about some other stuff, but you just rattled off a bunch of people 
you know, I think about your heroes and the people that I think you and I have spent time talking about over the years, and they're almost all journalists. I don't think you and I have ever really talked about novelists. I don't think I couldn't tell you. Well, I have a decent guess at your top, like I could name 10 journalists who I think you admire. I don't think I could tell you what your taste in novelists is. I now know that you like Richard Russo. Not surprisingly, Richard Russo is great. But like when you thought about this aspirationally, not that you were trying to try to copy anybody's voice because you're a practiced enough writer to know that you were going to have your own voice. You're going to write this your own way. But when you thought about either the writers who write the kinds of books that you were trying to kind of want or you wanted to be tonally, temperamentally, structurally, were there things where you thought that's kind of where I want to land? And are there writers, novelists who you think this is kind of my, these are not my pantheon, like these are the greatest novels of all time, but these are the kind of writers I really enjoy reading because this is a book that you can, it's not, you know, it's not fucking remembrance of things. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be fun. It's, and it's not, it's not a, like a cheap beach read. I don't want to call it a beach read, yeah. but it's a page turner, you know, and it is fun. It's supposed to be fun. And for a, a novel that has a lot of suspense in it, it is very funny, as Stephen King pointed out. So talk about writers that were kind of in your head. Yeah, you know, I moved to New York City in January 2000 from the Midwest to peddle my ways as a, as a writer and to figure out my place in the world. I remember picking up heartbreaking working staggering genius and being like, oh, wait, I can't do this. I am totally screwed now. Uh, Dave Eggers is a fellow Midwestern Illinois guy that I would say was very formative. He's one of those guys when I read something, I have to be real careful to not write something very soon after because it would sound exactly like him. Um, Novelist-wise, I feel like J. Courtney Sullivan, who wrote a book called Maine, which I think is really good. Uh, my friend Jamie Attenberg is a terrific author. Tom Parada, who actually wrote the foreword to my first thing, a uh, series of essays. They are the type of people, because there's nothing... There's nothing wrong with like creative writing degrees and MFAs and Yado and McDowell. Those are all great things. I have nothing against those. I have many wonderful writers do those things. And there's not, it's great. It's a big part of the process. If it helps them, that's awesome. I'm not, just to be very clear, I'm very pro those things. That is not necessarily my sensibility. Uh, my sensibility is probably more of uh, the Ebert idea of like, sit down, shut up and start writing. And, uh, and I feel like my favorite writers, you can sense that from their writing. That like they write because they are compelled to write and compelled to feel of to fill a page. And so I did not consciously make set out to make a how lucky a page turner, but like I think fast, I write fast, I make things fast. And so inevitably I feel like there, there's a momentum that kind of comes with that. And my favorite writers probably come from that. I want to say that just for future reference, you know, like when when Kamala Harris uh, was on stage with Joe Biden at the de first Democratic debate and she said, I don't think you're a racist. You know, it was like everybody was, everybody was like, well, you should just call him a racist. So just, just to, so just to I'm be just clear, saying, if you say things like, if you say things like, if you think I have nothing against Yato, you know, know it's listen, basically I'm, like, basically like, I think fucking Yato is for ridiculous rubes and I boobs. I do not believe That's that. Like, I do not believe that. I know yes, there are friends Will. who wrote wonderful books at Yato. Like, I'm not saying that, but I do think that my sensibility is probably not. I, I would go yeah. crazy in there. <laughs> I would go absolutely crazy. Yeah, just as you go through your media tour, we'll just be careful because when you yeah. when you say that when you say things like "I have all the respect in the world for Yato," it's like, man, he fucking hates. I'm Yato. not saying that John um, Heilman's a bad guy. I'm just yeah, saying right, that, right. Uh, Mr. Vice President, I'm not saying you're a racist. <laughs> but <laughs> all right, listen, uh, it's time to take a break, um, and we're gonna uh, do that right now. Um, we're gonna listen to an ad, and then we're gonna come back and talk to Will Leach about his kind of not, you know. Uh, I mean, this is a seminal man in the contemporary history of modern journalism, particularly as it relates to sports and culture. And we're going to talk about that when we come back on Hell High Water. Hey, sports fans, if you are someone who enjoys Hell and High Water and you are interested in understanding the storylines that are shaping modern life, and I mean, who isn't? Big storylines like the financialization of everything, the world in disarray. 
and cutting edge advances in the world of science and technology, then you are going to love and find absolutely indispensable the Recount's newest podcast, the News Items Podcast with John Ellis. Every Monday through Thursday at 5.30 p.m., John and his brilliant co-host, Rebecca Darst, break down news items from three categories, geopolitics, finance, and science and tech. John Ellis writes one of the very best newsletters in journalism. I'm talking about, like, I get a lot of newsletters, and most of them wash right over me. This one sticks. It's also called News Items, and he's teamed up with Rebecca, who is a veteran financial journalist and someone who just takes a little bit of John's edge off. If you want to feel a little bit smarter, or maybe even a whole lot smarter every day, and come away with a better understanding of the forces that are changing and shaping and transforming our world, then you owe it to yourself to listen to John and Rebecca and the News Items podcast. Plus, on most days, those two brilliant people have a bunch of other brilliant people who come on. Heavy hitters like Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, Jim Cramer from Business TV, Jill Abramson, Steen Jakobsen, all kinds of great folks. So subscribe to the News Items podcast with John Ellis now. And we're back on Helen High Water here with Will Leach, author of the fantastic novel, How Lucky. And we're going to take a little trip down memory lane. And to begin that, let's take a listen to a famous sports television personality named Bob Costas. Oh, no talking about a much younger version of Will Leach. Instant scores and constant updates. Any stat that's ever been computed. Highlights, breakdowns, and analysis of every game from thousands of writers in hundreds of cities. What sports fan could complain about that? But there's also this, the wild west of the internet, the blogosphere, a virtual bulletin board where anyone can post anything opinions photos videos all blurring the lines between news and gossip truth and rumor commentary and insult among the most popular blogs is deadspin.com which boasts sports news without access favor or discretion as its motto if you're a famous athlete you don't want to end up on deadspin especially if you were out drinking the night before yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The site gets 10 million hits a month. Will Leach is its 32-year-old founder. If something's true and something is valid and something is worthwhile doing, I will do it. But I, I think that gets confused sometimes with, all right, what can I dig up on somebody? Like, it's not, that's not what it is at all. It's just a matter of, like, you know, certain, if so, something is newsworthy enough, it, it, it will be covered. And sometimes those things are, are uh, not necessarily PG. <laughs> not necessarily PG. That's as well. I think was that before you guys published the dick pics of Brett Favre. I was not editor when they did that, so that was yeah. after my time. Yes. that was after my time. That was after. Your uh, time. For the record, so just that was to be too... clear, if I would have received dick pics of Brett Favre, I would have like not only not published them, I like probably would have quit the business entirely. I don't. Want, I just right. I, I don't even want to look at football anymore. So that's Bob Costas. Mm -hmm. The show was Costas Now on HBO. People may have forgotten that that show existed. Thirteen years ago, two thousand eight, and I'll tell you, Will. You, you won't be surprised to learn this, but I decided that I wanted to play that sound. I also was going to talk about Deadspin with you on Hell and Hot Water today. I decided I was going to play that sound because I remember we'll play a little more sound from the actual show, from the panel discussion part of it in a moment. But I was going to play it before I realized you'd just written about it on Substack, yeah. reflecting on that moment. So I want to step back and let's just do this right now because there's stuff before Deadspin and Will, Will Leach's life, but let's just mm -hmm. focus on this for the moment. 2008, 13 years ago, you're running Deadspin three years old at that yeah. point right had kind of invented sports blogging and in some respects it was one of the central pillars of of inventing what blogging was 
and you're now on HBO. <laughs> and Bob Costas is basically calling you a gutter snipe, yeah. you know, and sort of saying, you know, hey, this Internet thing's kind of like, you know, it's exciting and there's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot of information at your fingertips, but these guys are kind of scummy. How about that, Will? <laughs> yeah. So how did you end up on that show? And and, and we'll just talk about the whole experience. I mean, I, your, your thing in Substack is pretty interesting, actually, as a reflection on what that whole thing was like. Yeah, I, I, I can't believe you haven't said the word Buzz Bissinger yet. I know you've got a quote coming up, but uh, oh, we'll get, we'll get I, to Buzz. I'm sure you will. But yeah, so that was I've been running Deadspin for about two and a half years and you know, for me, Deadspin was a life before I was answering phones to the doctor's office before Deadspin. Like I was writing all the time, but like actually, like I my career was not established to any stretch of the imagination. And Deadspin was a lucky break. I, I successfully pitched it to then Gawker Media. I don't ever know what happened with Gawker Media. I don't remember what, what went down with them. Uh, but uh, they, uh, so it was a part of Gawker Media. But the advantage I had was I was left alone because no one at Nick Denton didn't know anything about sports. So I could just could write whatever I wanted. Nick Denton, for anybody who doesn't know, Nick Denton, yes, the, yes. the famous founder of Gawker Media, yeah. a famous and infamous human being, a British guy. Nick was just basically establishing the beginnings of the first and really only ever blog empire. Yeah. But was an incredibly important figure in the evolution of all this stuff. And you went to him and said, hey, let's do a sports yes, blog. And, uh, and, and they said, well, you're cheap and nobody knows who you are. So you got like six months. And then it became Deadspin. And it was fun for me to do Deadspin because it was fertile territory. You know, I had worked as a freelance sports reporter in the Times. I liked sports. And I had seen how kind of the world of sports the people that work in sports, whether they were media or executives or whatever, and the actual fans of sports, how huge of a disconnect there was the two of them. And the internet was an obvious place to be able to connect them. And so I thought the site to me, I mean, I'm still like a dopey Midwestern kid. So it was very strange to me, particularly among the other Gawker media sites. They found this stuff hilarious. They're like, Will, you have the sweetest, nicest, safest site. Do you see what we did on Wonkette the other day? And so like the idea that like I would be under fire to them said something a lot more about the world of sports than it did necessarily necessarily what, what I was doing over there. But certainly, you know, Costas was, you know, not every piece was about how uh, Mickey Mantle was uh, mainlining Ovaltine uh, back in the great days of uh, 1961. And I think that he kind of got together with Buzz Bissinger, who is, for the record, a beautiful writer and an excellent journalist, uh, but I think, you know, is of strong opinions about the written word. And I think what was frustrating for me at the time is I thought there was an interesting conversation. It's still an interesting conversation. Well, let's just pause this for a moment. So, okay, go ahead. Yes. Will Leach kind of comes out of nowhere, uh, as you just suggested, pitching himself cheap. There were no sports blogs. Nick Denton, someone I knew long before he started Gawker, had been a Financial Times journalist, had come and kind of fashioned himself as a bad boy of New York media, having been nothing like that <laughs> in the rest of his life, kind of reinvented himself, a classic kind of American kind of Gatsby-esque kind of tale of someone who made up a persona for himself, which was a nihilistic fuck the rules, fuck everybody, take everybody down. I don't give a shit. Nothing like what his previous kind of grasping establishmentarian Oxbridge <laughs> uh, wanted to be in the high and in the, the, the great and the good, but then just reimagined himself, started this empire. The sports blog becomes Deadspin. Will Leach is on it. I think it's fair to say, and we'll get to Bissinger in a second, but you just made a point that's really important to me. There was a lot of nastiness around Gawker. Like the people who did it often, the, the tone of it was nasty. There was a nihilism to it. Wonkat, a lot of those things that they did had a tone of the snark, the sneer, the takedown. It was the thing that was different about Deadspin. And, and I, I, before I met you, didn't really understand it. Look, for anybody who's out there who wants to have a good time, type in, you know, Will Leach, do a photo search on Google <laughs> and go back and look at the pictures of Will from the early aughts. It's like emo boy, floppy hair, leather jackets, tough poses. 
but he's actually like a hardy boy, you know? <laughs> and Deadspin always stood out for being much more playful and irreverent and certainly was all about knocking down a lot of the tropes of traditional reverential sports journalism, but it wasn't a sleazy gossip site and it didn't have that tone of nastiness mostly when you were doing it. It was like you were, it was much more in tune with your personality. And before I met you, I was like, Deadspin doesn't seem to have the character of these other Gawker media blogs, but this guy with that leather jacket and that sneer looks like a Nick Denton kind of guy. And I was a little kind of weirdly afraid of you at first. And then when I met you, I'm like, oh, he is a hearty boy. <laughs> he is just a sweetheart, right? So that's what all the setup for this is, right? Is that fair? I think so. That's a fair assessment of Deadspin. I'm like, you were self-consciously not as nasty at Deadspin as a lot of the other Gawker media sites. Is that yeah, fair? I, mean, I think a, that's my right. personality, but B, also, it was very obvious very quickly that Deadspin was going to represent the sports internet for a lot of people. Uh, you saw the direction this could go, and frankly, later did go uh, in a lot of places. And I didn't want it to do I wanted it to be like a positive face. Like, I'm a positive guy. And I wanted to be like, you know what? We can still be irreverent. We can still take down sacred cows, but not make you feel like you need to take a shower afterwards. And that was always kind of the goal of the site. So that gets us to the rest of the Costas show, which is which is really is legendary. We played the intro to it, but the thing that's legendary is the Bissinger uh, exchange. So Costas introduces this package with that piece of tape and says, here's this guy, Woolleach. Will says a few things like we heard him say. And then we go to the town hall portion, which was taped, I believe, in front of a live audience in New York City. And this when this thing came out, Buzz Bissinger is famous primarily to anybody who does not know who Buzz Bissinger is, wrote Friday Night Lights, nonfiction about a Texas high school football in Texas. And obviously Friday Night Lights took on an iconic significance with the television show. Yeah. Buzz did a lot of other things, but Friday Night Lights is the thing that will be the first line of his obituary. And he was a cantankerous guy, a brilliant guy, a tough guy, a big figure in sports journalism. He's someone who a lot of people that you and I know idolized, right, as a writer, because Friday Night Lights is a fucking great Myself book. included at the time, to be very clear. Yes. So you're invited. And so that when this thing happened, we're about to play. It was a brush fire on the Internet when it first happened. It was like the it epitomized the clash between old and new, young and brash and old and establishment. And no one previously would have said but Buzz Bissinger was some kind of like crusty old establishmentarian. Nobody thought he was like, you know. Um, Jimmy Cannon or like, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's not like this guy had barnacles right. all over his right. body or something. He was not yeah. like he was not old. But it became kind of iconic. So I want to play it now and then we'll talk about it because it is illuminative of a moment and a transformation that was happening in our media that you were right in the middle of, Will. So let's play this thing. Will sits down, the conversation starts, and then this unfolds. I'm just going to interject because I feel very strongly about this. I really think you're full of shit. Okay. Well, that's, that's fair Because enough. I think that blogs are dedicated to cruelty. They're dedicated to journalistic dishonesty. They're dedicated to speed. Here's here's insight in blogging because it really pisses the shit out of me. Which is in your publication, yeah, Deadspin. He didn't in need. Let me finish. Anyway. He didn't need. He didn't need to see. Listen to this. He didn't need to see Rich Garza's tits in order to glean insight as to how he pitches. Then in parentheses, this is so fucking clever. Though I've heard Rich Garza's tits are amazing. Shit. He didn't even need to see him play on TV. The difference between how Rick Riley. Right, we get the idea. Yeah, yeah. We get the idea. Um, and for the record, Rich Garces, I am not familiar with his breasts. How can you be proud of that stuff? How can you be proud of it? <laughs> no, and how can you right, right, let, it, let him respond, Buzz. Go ahead. Like, you can take anything off the way. Of course there's going to be. This, this is a different voice. This is a new thing. That's a Certainly, voice? That's a disgusting voice. Well, maybe you think so, and maybe some people don't. For the record, I think a key context to that, by the way, the thing that he was quoting was from the comment section under a piece. 
And I actually right. think that's important because they had so little understanding of even what this stuff was that they thought I wrote all of it. Hugely yeah. important because, of course, he's ranting about something and you don't know that right. when you're watching the show. Anybody who wasn't familiar with this just hears Bud's Messenger's reading this thing, claiming no. it's like, this is published yeah, on no, your site. As if, like, yeah. as if you'd assi- yeah. you wrote it or you assigned right, it right, to a reporter right. or something, right? But just talk about it, man. Like, I mean, it's hard to believe that it was as big a deal as it was when this happened. But it was like, wow, Buzz Bissinger like threw a nutty and attacked this guy. And there were a lot of people who were like, man, fuck Buzz Bissinger. We're totally on Will Leach's side. And there were other people who were like, yeah, man, fuck blogs. You know, like that Buzz Bissinger's right. This is this like this is dry. This whole thing is a fucked thing that's happening here. Inter- it was interesting in the moment. But now having read your Substack post on it, it's even more interesting now, I think, as you reflect on it, both in terms of the, the larger what it says about the larger evolution of this stuff and also for you, because it really is, it's a moment in your career and that it does relate to where you are today and what yeah, you're doing. Certainly now. there's two parts to that. We'll start with the, the idea of what it was at the time. It was frustrating to me because it flattened a conversation that I thought was an important one. Like clearly these things were changing. Something was changing. Something was different. No longer were writers like Buzz be able to just write things and then just sit back and it was over. The only people that ever commented about it were their family and their editors and their friends that tell them how great it was. That was in 2008. This is right when everything's starting to explode. You know this, I know this. Anytime anyone does anything on the internet, someone yells at them immediately after, particularly, frankly, if you're a woman where you can't do anything online without, without particularly in the world of sports, without anything coming at you. That was a different, that was a change. The idea of more voices and different voices, that was an interesting conversation. That unfortunately, I don't think Buzz was interested in having. And I think it, it turned into this kind of scream fest. And that, th- that thing got so like went around so much that like by a couple of days later, you'd see a video post. It was just like, old man goes crazy yelling. Like it had nothing to do with sports, had nothing to do with journalism or nothing to do with anything. And I will say it was frustrating to me because one of the things with that's been two that I tried to do was to ride that line between, okay, I will push the envelope on things because I think there are things in the world of sports journalism that the envelope does need to be pushed. However, I want people to feel like they don't have to take a shower at the ending the site. And when that happened, I thought, you know what? For a lot of people, it just doesn't matter. Like, it just doesn't matter. This is new and this is weird and I don't like it and you suck. And one of the big moments that happened at the very beginning of the show was Buzz, I think, wanted to like show that I was stupid and didn't know anything about real writing. And so he, he tossed out, he's like, he's like, you probably don't even know W.C. Hines. You don't know who that is. And I literally had just finished a book by W.C. Hines about boxing. And I quoted it and I kind of took him aback. I was like, oh, yeah, I know who W.C. Hines is. I'm not actually the stupid person that you obviously think that I am. And that was when I knew it was going to go not go well <laughs> because his eyes kind of flared up a little bit. And I was like, oh, I, I, again, I'd seen him backstage. And he, I was like, hello, sir. It's good to meet you. He was like, Whoa. I was like, OK, this is going to be a different experience. So I was kind of prepared for it. This was actually not that long after the Democratic debates between Hillary and Obama when Hillary was clearly behind yeah. and was doing everything she could to throw everything she could at Obama. And, and I remember my mother, who was a big Obama supporter, said, you need to be Obama cool in those regards. Like everything that she throws, everything, if something like that happens, everything <laughs> you throw, you just got to be, just got to let it roll off of you. And, and I thought that was really important. But I will say, I left for New York Magazine full time not long after that. I remember one of my, the coolest thing that happened to this is I got to be interviewed by David Carr. Yeah. David Carr was one of my heroes. Late, much beloved. Just brilliant. Just iconic. Yeah. 
media columnist, the New York Times now passed away. And so, yeah, you got to talk to David about and that. I'm still so new to this world. Like, I, these are my journalistic heroes. Like, Buzz Bissinger was <laughs> like, these are people that whose work I read and love. So, and I remember David Carr, of course, because he was David Carr, got the story exactly right and knew exactly what it was and didn't do any of this posturing uh, sort of stuff about it. He, he got it exactly right. And to me, I was just like, I'm talking to David Carr. I'm talking to David Carr. And I realized I don't want to be the punk kid to these people. Right. Because I'm not. <laughs> and it was like very frustrating for me to realize I can do everything right and try to do everything the way I want to have the work stand up. And some people just don't want to hear it. And I'm never going to get them. Right. <laughs> like I'm never going to get them if I don't do that. And so uh, I think it's a reason that I moved off of this. And frankly, also, Deadspin was becoming, because it was getting so successful, it was starting to become. Like all of a sudden advertising people were showing up and be like, hmm, well, okay, we gotta we gotta expand our page views. We gotta do all this. And for me, it was like my yeah. project that I did the way I wanted. So then I handed yeah. it off to other people and they made it bigger and, and bolder and I would argue quite better. And more dick pics. Uh, yeah, but I, I would argue, particularly as in its later incarnations, the Tommy Craig's incarnation or the uh, the Tim Marchman or Meg Greenwell incarnations, they took the site in a direction I would have never imagined in a much better way. It got more voices, got more right. perspective, and I think did it in a way that I wouldn't have even thought how to do it back then. Yeah, it's nice of you to give credit to your successors. You're always a gentleman, Will. Uh, that was the last question I was going to ask you about this, and then we'll take another break, but just, you know... It's interesting to me that it was actually a moment for you. I mean, the, the trajectory of your career, I mean, there, you know, this is like the most cliche thing in the world, right? Which is kind of the talented writer, uh, reporter comes out of nowhere, finds a toehold in the industry at a young kind of boundary breaking, you know, iconoclastic kind of a place that's not established an up and coming place makes a name for himself and then makes his way into the establishment, you know, and gets hired at New York magazine or at MLB or whatever the whatever, you have a lot of homes, but, mm -hmm. you know, becomes more, I don't want to say conventional, but becomes mainstreamed, right? That's a normal trajectory. It's just interesting to me that this Bissinger thing is in the middle of it psychologically in some way that like that thing was like kind of crystallizing in some way for you. And it, and it does read the obvious question that you end with here is now that you are, you know, having been perceived as the bad boy of sports journalism <laughs> and now being kind of a fixture in the establishment of sports journalism, still not in the establishment in the way, like if you worked at ESPN, right. but very, I mean, New York magazine, sports columnist, like pretty, that's mainstream. Was that an awkward transition? And how do you feel about that now? But it's kind of answered in a way because it's like these things happen and you were like, this is actually a more comfortable place for you in truth, in terms of who you actually and are. I honestly do not believe that Deadspin when I ran it was really all that terrible. <laughs> I just, I don't. Well, I didn't yeah. say it was, no, I didn't say it was terrible. Yeah. It was outside the mainstream and it was seen, it was seen as transgressive and it yeah. was seen as, well, if you, you could either say it was innovative and avant-garde, or you could say it was, you know, transgressive right. and, and, and nasty, but I'm, I'm actually, I'm just saying it's like not, it was not a mainstream oh, no, no, establishment. I agree. I agree. But what I'm saying is that and, like, what, what's interesting is when I started New York magazine, I just kept writing the same way I was at Deadspin. Like, like for right. me, like that, yeah. that to me was always the weird thing. Like people are always just like, how are you going to change New York magazine? Like I'm not, I was writing for New York magazine when I was at Deadspin. I'm just going to keep writing more of that stuff. And I think because <laughs> of that, I honestly believe it was because the sports world was so buttoned up and so conservative and so established with this August tradition that they freaked out for something that was even slightly different, even if I don't actually think it was particularly transgressive or all that scary. I was like, uh, you know, hey, we could spend this part of the podcast talking about Will's life and how it was like growing up <laughs> and Roger Ebert and all these other things. But of course, once you get onto Costas and Bissinger, <laughs> that just takes the whole podcast up. So I'm going to stop now and we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and actually talk about some matters of substance at least in the substance of the kinds of things you write about. Well, I, I have a lot of, we and I have not had a good jam on 
sports uh, and some of the actual contemporary sports journalism you've been doing. You also do other things in the realm of culture. But uh, I do want to ask you about some stuff that's going on at the intersection of sports, politics, and culture. So we'll come back after this break with author of the great novel, How Lucky, Will Leach here on Hell and High Water. And we're back with Will Leach on Hell and High Water, author of How Lucky, famed sports writer, culture guru, and someone who part of my attraction to someone who I've hired and has worked for me in addition to working with me and been a colleague and an employee is that Will really has always lived right where you get to the intersection of politics, sports, culture, all that stuff. And there's a lot of stories in that area. But to kick this off, let's take a quick listen to the reaction of another famous sports journalist to Major League Baseball's decision to move the All-Star game out of Atlanta because of questions around voter suppression. Here comes Mike Wilbon. My reaction is not just good, great. Uh, the shut up and dribble crowd, a significant portion, uh, many in the state of Georgia have decided that people who look like me, black and brown people, shouldn't vote. And if it's okay, if you're going to vote, we're going to make it as difficult as we can for you to vote. And so this has been a struggle for a lot of people going on, Tony. Renewed struggle. We saw that in the last election season, if you will. But it was most often led by basketball and people associated with basketball who mobilized the effort to vote. So for Major League Baseball to come up with this, this is not basketball you know, initiated. For Major League Baseball to do this and for the commissioner to say, I decided, which that statement says, it's going to come as a sort of remarkable feat uh, for some people. And again, for the shut up and dribble crowd, I'm sure they'll be very angry that baseball got political. And we'll see that. So that's, uh, as I said, Mike Wilbon from Part of the Interruption on ESPN, talking to his colleague, Tony Kornheiser, and talking about the decision to move the All-Star Game. And Will, you wrote about this uh, in New York Magazine and took a slightly different point of view about what was going on here. Mike imbues that decision with a lot of kind of, this is a big deal. Baseball is now taking a stand on a matter of principle, on a matter of politics. This is great. And your view of it, as I recall reading it in New York Magazine when it happened, was a little bit more jaundiced, <laughs> cold-eyed. Talk about that a little bit. For the record, I do think it's a big deal and I'm glad they did it. It was an important thing. I just don't think that Major League Baseball made this decision because they they may or may not care about voting rights in Georgia, but they made this decision, I think, in a pretty clear, smart business decision. You know, the All-Star Game is one of the most, it's the jewel event. Like there's a World Series, but the World Series, you don't know where it's going to be. It happens in late in the year, football's going on. Like the All-Star Game is Major League Baseball's signature event that they have to itself. Television ratings are, or one thing or the other, but the All-Star Game is their event. It's they control it. It's their thing with all eyes. The commissioner gives a state of the game speech every year. It's that every year. It's a huge, huge thing that they build up to for a long time. It became incredibly clear to them once that bill was passed that there wasn't a thing with that All-Star Game that if it was remained in, not in Atlanta, in Georgia, by the way, I feel like very, as a Georgia person, obliged to point out that same is not in Atlanta. It is in Cobb County, mm. which I think is an important thing, to be honest. But it was it became increasingly clear to them that they, every single conversation about that All-Star Game, after that bill was passed, if they didn't move, it was going to be, how can you still have it here? They were going to ask every player, are you going to play? They were going to ask every coach. Right. It was going to be the central conversation of everything about it. Add to that, then sponsors all having to have those conversations. Well, sure. I, to me, I, maybe they care deeply about voting rights and maybe they don't, but I really don't think that was the driving force of this decision. 
Well, the headline on the column, Major League Baseball has not gone woke, I think suggests that you don't. I mean, not that they not not that they're anti voting right, rights, right. but that they just really don't give a shit. And this is all really about money, which I don't think is, you know, look, I mean, that's how a lot of change happens is, you know, when, you know, you're responding to market dynamics, you are a company, you care about your customers when your customers are in an uproar about something. When the whole e economic ecosystem, when supply and demand changes and the people vote with their, I mean, vote in the sense of their expressed economic interests. That's how it's supposed to work yeah. on some level. When they start to see that the profit motive, it drives them towards making enlightened decisions or progressive decisions. That is just telling you that the world is changing and that's neither a chicken or egg. It's like, it's not driving the change, nor is it purely responsive to the change because it's responsive to the change, but then it pushes the change forward because it has after effects. Also, it's all this giant thing. And I, I ask you that, uh, you know, you've you wrote a lot last year about these matters in the wake of George Floyd, about the way the NBA's activism got lit up. You know, Wilbon talked about that a little bit, that the NBA has been the kind of locus for activism, particularly among black athletes. Do you think it's different between baseball and basketball because of the racial makeups of the leagues? Like, how would you characterize one of the things you did at Bloomberg when we worked together? Mm. You know, as you went through and looked at the political orientations of the leagues and the owners and, you know, which were the what were the red sports and what were the blue sports? Right. And there were ways to look at use data, look at that. I'm just curious as to whether it is the case really that the NBA is more woke in some sense than Major League Baseball, or are they both just big companies responding to the profit motive? I think they're both big companies responding to the profit motive. But I also think part of this, too, is how they interact with players and the interactions they have with the players union. It became very clear. I wrote a piece for New York Magazine a couple of years ago about how you can make a pretty strong argument that the Donald Sterling incident involving the NBA commissioner became Adam Silver's big moment. Like that, that was where the league, yep. you know, on one thing it established it as commissioner, but what it really did is it established firmly that the NBA was a partnership between the owners and the players. Now it's not a perfect partnership and they're obviously going to be battling about a lot of different things, but, but Silver, I think his main insight was recognizing that Players don't just consider themselves players. They actually consider themselves entrepreneurs. They consider themselves active. They are a corporations of their own in the same way that owners think of themselves that way. And to me, that is the major difference that the NBA has figured out. Like every baseball player, like Bob Manfred and Roger Goodell, they have to deal with owners and each individual owner and what's good for them. And it becomes a big thing. But the idea of like, yes, but what about the business interests of Adam Wainwright or like never occurs to them at all. But in the NBA, I think the reason that Silver's had a lot of labor peace and has like been able to go over this stuff is he treats players like owners. Right. And I think that has been the central thing. That, and I think the Donald Sterling was the pivot thing for that. And so therefore, he is on one hand, yes, I'm sure there are NBA owners. I know there are NBA, owner, NBA owners that are definitely not woke, however you want to uh, use that term. But Silver understands that players are owners <laughs> and therefore you have they, they have to be treated as such. Baseball does not have that. I don't think baseball has that. Or even more so that I would argue that, yeah, as you kind of point out, the demographics of players is something that's happening in baseball right now. I don't know if you've noticed watching a baseball game. Some teams have to wear masks in the dugout and some teams don't have to wear masks in the dugout. The reason is there is an 85% threshold for every team through Major League Baseball. If you can get 85% of your team vaccinated, all the restrictions are off. You can eat on the road. You can do generally back to normal stuff. The Yankees are some of these teams, the Cardinals, the Tigers. Uh, I would say about a third of the teams are fully vaccinated. They've got hit the 85% threshold. A lot aren't, <laughs> and they are not lacking for access uh, right. is probably the best way to put it. Yeah. So like, clearly there is a different demographic thing involving baseball players. And so therefore you don't have to cater 
Uh, Cater's the wrong way to put because I believe Silver actually does believe these things. Yeah, yeah, but sure. when you're looking for pleasing players and giving them what they want and making sure they feel like partners in this enterprise, the, your clientele in that regard is very different in basketball than it is in baseball. Just talk a little bit about LeBron in that context, right? Because, I mean, there's no player in any league, I would say, that is more like, oh, he's a fucking owner. Yeah. I mean, he's more powerful than any any owner in any league, I would say. And he's obviously someone who also has decided over the course of the last couple of years to become increasingly politically assertive, whether that's by starting more than a vote or by speaking out in various ways. He got in some trouble with himself when he tweeted this thing about the Makia Bryant tweet where he put a tweet, I guess, that that showed the officers. Yeah. Well, I don't know what the original tweet was. It was a tweet that was regarded by some as having kind of maybe inciting violence towards the police. He took the tweet down very quickly, but he's become a very assertive voice in this area, both spending money, making statements on Twitter, getting in Donald Trump's face. You know, uh, we heard Wilbon talk about the shut up and dribble crowd, which is Laura Ingram directed at LeBron James when you know, that kind of phrase, which epitomizes a certain attitude towards athletes activism, shut up and dribble. She kind of summed it up right there. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about LeBron, who some people think might just be starting to first show the signs of physically starting to like maybe showing his age a little bit just in this season. But someone who is obviously like trying to build a beachhead for something really big once he finishes his career, while he's while he continues his career to the end, but also after it seems like he's trying to build himself into I'm going to be a mogul. I am going to have a big voice and politics and social justice are going to be a big part of that. What do you make of the LeBron thing in this area? Yeah, I wrote a big feature for New York Magazine about more than a vote. His organization was able to talk to a lot of people inside the organization. But I think one of the most interesting people I talked to was Chris Weber. He is actually teaching a class at Morehouse about the sports activism and the history of it. And one of the things he talked about was everything is just kind of building on the last generation. And, you know, there's a sense in the NBA that they want Chris Weber and like LeBron and a lot of these players, they want the next generation to feel a little bit more comfortable talking about this than the previous generation. And one of the things they talked about, there's this old idea that Michael Jordan, you know, Republicans buy shoes too, which is a disputed quote for a long time. And he appears to, in the, in the last dance documentary, confirmed that he actually said it. But like the thing about that is that was always taken as a criticism of Michael Jordan. Like how can Michael Jordan not take a stand? That was in the Jesse Helms race, I believe is what that was. How can they not take a stand on this? But no one looked at the other direction and say, hey, why does Michael Jordan have to worry about losing endorsements over getting involved in politics? And so one of the things that they're trying to push is the idea like, you know what, when you get more power and you get more influence, you can just say what you want to and the corporation will work around you and work around what you're doing. And I think what LeBron's kind of central insight has been is, you know what, I'm so big that I could make Nike do what I want to do. And the fact that Michael freaking Jordan, the uh, the guy, the absolute top of his field, felt uncomfortable making a political statement is not about Michael Jordan's weakness. It is about the weakness of the larger culture. And that is why I find really interesting about LeBron is this compilation of powers. Obviously, he wants to be a mogul. He, wants, he likes money. Who doesn't like money? Uh, he, he's for all of those things. But it really is a lot of ways about power. And more than a vote is kind of interesting in that like, it, on one hand, it is really at its basic core. Like it's just a political organization. Like it's a, yeah. you know, it's, it's classification. You get yet. But what they do is they want it to be like a vessel for any athlete that wants to get involved in whatever it is, whatever it is, here's a place, come here. What are your interests? What do you care about? What, what are you thinking? And so it's not this like, okay, come with us and we're going to work to get this person elected or this person elected or this person elected. It is what are your causes? What are your things right now? I think last year, and I think continuing forward, for quite good reason, 
voter suppression is a very big part of what they're doing. But like they don't consider themselves exclusively a voting rights organization. Wow. They consider themselves a place for athletes to be able to speak to the issues and feel protected uh, in a way. I think that's a big part of it. I think that's what he was really, he's really trying to do. You know, for an organization that uh, is called more than a vote, it's good that they're not just- <laughs> Right, that's true. Uh, that's true, that's true. Like, it would be, it'd be, it'd be like, you know, that's a good, well-chosen yeah. name yeah. if Otherwise, you're not doing restrictions. Vote. Vote <laughs> I just want to, I want to end on what I would say on a purely sports-related thing, because, you know, you moved down to Athens. You, you know, had come from the Midwest. You moved to New York. You were in New York for a little while, a, a blessed period in the life of the city. And, and you know, <laughs> we all chill. were- it's, it's still recovering. We all had the quality of our life enhanced mm -hmm. by having you nearby, mm -hmm. Will. Uh, and then you went to Athens because you- I'm sorry about the property values that fell in my wake. I know. Um, you went to Athens to kind of find a more wholesome uh, life for your young children and so on. And everything seems to be going great for you. And you get to New York frequently and I love it when you come. Uh, but when you were in New York, uh, you and I used to go to some basketball games together. I was a original season tickets holder at the Brooklyn Nets, and I've been to a million Knicks games in my life. I don't know that I ever thought there would come a day in, in my imaginable future where the Brooklyn Nets and the New York Knicks would both be actually good. Not like, you know, good by Eastern Conference standards. Right. You know, you're making the eighth seed in the, in the playoffs with a below 500 record. Boy, that, I saw the Knicks do that a few times. We all have, right? They're both good teams right now. And you could argue the Nets, you know, one of the best teams in the league. And obviously in a, in a context of one of these superstar assemblages like the LeBron one in Miami, that's what it kind of the best template for it with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and, and James Harden now all in, in Brooklyn. So it seems a little bit unfortunate that it's happening in 2021 when it's still a little weird to go to sporting events. And, you know, no, they're not. It's not like a normal season yet. It's not as weird as the bubble was. But I just want you to talk about. The extraordinary, like if there's a sign that maybe like we're coming out of the blackness and out of the apocalypse, I mean, it's either a sign of the apocalypse that the apocalypse really is nigh two good NBA teams in New York, <laughs> or it means we're all going to be okay. What's uh, the idea that the cover of the New Yorker has the Nets and the Knicks on it in the middle of this is kind of like that feels like nature, like either nature healing or like a glitch in the matrix. One, one yeah. of those two things. Uh, <laughs> I will. I am a Knicks fan. I'm a diehard Knicks fan and I uh, have suffered with them since I moved to New York, which has been you know, 20 years now. And the fun thing about it is it feels like they're both going to be good for a while. Like as long as Durant and Irving are here, they're going to be good. But like the Knicks, the fear with the Knicks, they are constructed incredibly well, meticulously well. It is kind of remarkable that Leon Rose, the president, who of course has been an agent for years, has been involved with it. He There's a patience and a prudence and an intelligence he's put together to, to create that team. No, not None of those are words that you would ever have associated with the New York Knicks in our lifetime. It's funny. There's been a couple of times that you've been briefly associated with him. And then Jim Dolan came in and said, bong, 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 and started smashing things around like he just did with the New York Rangers, which is actually very much terrifying mm -hmm. Knicks fans right now. But it is very exciting to see you know I, I i was covering the knicks for new york magazine when the jeremy lynn thing happened and i jeremy lynn yeah. is not that like carmelo anthony is the best player to play for the next last 20 years it's not jeremy lynn i was that was a fun little but i remember i interviewed spike lee for new york magazine and he's obviously who knows the garden better than spike lee and he said i've never heard it louder than during jeremy lynn and i asked him why that was like why was it why is it louder during jeremy lynn he's like because nobody saw it coming Nobody saw it coming. This was not like an overpriced superstar that we're all yelling at that he better perform. He came out of nowhere and there was a sense of discovery and the Knicks never have a sense of discovery. So to me, that's why this team, the Nets are great and a much better team than the Knicks and a much better bet to win the uh, NBA title. But I feel like that's why, A, because the Knicks obviously have the institutional groundwork in New York, but also this is a Knicks team 
the Knicks sell out when there's having Zach Randolph chucking up 45 foot three pointers and Isaiah Thomas is terrible. That place is sold yeah. out every game. Yeah. To see an yeah. exciting team that's come out of nowhere, it's euphoria. It's what they've been waiting for for all this time. And so the problem is it only lasts once. And now next year, it's like, hey, why aren't you better? Why aren't you winning a championship? And then Dolan will get involved and then it will all get ruined. But for now, it's very, very fun. Well, that's the thing is, you know, you raised the Jeremy Lim thing and I, you know, I don't know that I've ever felt like an owner more fundamentally stood in front of his entire fan base and gave them the finger than the way that Dolan treated Jeremy Lin. I think that's part of the thing that you're talking about. It's part of what being a Knicks fan. That's why everyone's so afraid of Jimmy Dolan, because Dolan has not just been a bad owner, or a stupid owner, or a cheap owner or a profligate owner. You know, he's been all those things at various times, but mostly he's just been so disrespectful of an incredibly loyal fan base. And the Jeremy Lin thing was the ultimate kind of like. Oh, you guys, this came out of nowhere and you guys love this guy. Fuck yeah, you. Like, like, I don't give a fuck about what you like. It's just like mal- malevolence to that move that I think made. I know I know Knicks fans who have been Knicks fans their entire lives who are like, I'm done. Yeah, I, I can't. I, get it. I, can't I, I will not be abused by Jimmy Dolan anymore. And that's why I think right now at this moment, there's this incredible sense of like, wow, the team's kind of good and like things are going kind of great. And this is what we always dreamed of. And who imagined we'd be here? And there's just we're waiting for Jimmy Dolan to come and take a shit all over it. And I think that's that's. Why everyone's terrible. Yeah, that's one of the Rangers right? things that just happened. I mean, the New York Rangers are being built in the correct way right now. And usually yeah. he leaves them alone because he's too busy messing yeah. with the Knicks. And so what do you do? He just went in and completely blew up everything in there. And Rangers fans are are obviously sad. But now Knicks fans are like, oh, right. We've forgotten about the monster in the closet. We've forgotten yeah. about that. And now the monster in the closet may be looming. Will, you going to write another novel? I am. I'm actually, uh, we're in the midst of one now. I actually, one thing I'm going to take from Stephen King is having everything, he has everything in Maine. I like the idea of everything being in Athens and like, you know, write a book about an old R.E.M. roadie or something. I think that's a great idea. Have you ever seen the movie Athens Inside Out? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When I was a young man and knew those guys, the REM guys, all that, the whole weirdness of Athens when it was new, you know, when I was first in college, I'm a little older than you, but you know, like R.E.M. was like, those guys are exactly my contemporaries, yeah. right? And so like from Chronic Town to Murmur were like very much last year of high school into early college. And they were a bar band when I was a freshman. And then right. at the at McGaw and then at the Rosemont Horizon, ultimately, by the time I was a senior, they'd gone from like a bar band to to club band to small arena band to, you know, stadium band. And Athens was a, because of the various bands that came out of there, was an object of great fixation if you were a music fan, particularly the college radio world. People like in that early, in that late 80s period, there was just so much weird shit going on down there. The music was great and there were all these funky artists and all that stuff that was very like, for a town as small as Athens is, a lot of people, because of R.E.M., got drawn into knowing a lot about it. And I think it's great for you because it does create that residual. There's just still, even now, probably all the young people, any young person who listens to this podcast will say to me, you know, what the fuck are you talking about, man? Athens is just another town in the South. But I think there's a residual. There is. There's a residual mystery around it and coolness around it that has never gone away. And that could be a place where you could write a lot of really great novels. And I'll say right now, how lucky is the first of hopefully what will be many. It's a great novel and a great achievement. And I'm really proud of you. And it was a delight to read. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Helen High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Will Leach for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on the Apple Podcast app or whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro, Russell, is our executive producer. 